I don't know if you guys know this, but Peter and I do not collaborate on my messages, right? So it's not like we don't get together and um, kind of plan things out so they all fit together. He, he usually does his series so that, you know, he doesn't have to worry about me, you know, taking from him. And then I just do my thing this once a month. What's interesting, though, is listening to this series and knowing what I was going to speak this week, it's, I mean, it's really a little bit spooky how similar and close and connected they are. And it has created for me, I mean, it's a little bit of a dilemma. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I mean, why is Peter stealing my sermons? And what do we do about that? Like, I don't know. Like, I've never done this church discipline thing, but I don't know. Anyhow. Maybe that's what it is. You need to hear more than once. Um, do you guys mind? I am just so tired. Like, do, you, do you care if I get a stool? Like, rhetorical. I'm going to go get a stool. So, um. I do, I, I actually, I do it for a couple of reasons. Everybody has their own, you know, what works for them. I do it because if I don't, I tend to get more and more animated, <laughs> and then I, 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 I get, it's harder to hear me, I think, and I need to sometimes just relax. This is one of those conversations that actually I really find myself, I love this conversation, not because I got it all figured out. Maybe just the opposite. I, it, it's like, I feel like, this is helping me really grasp something so important, and I yet I can't quite get my arms around how, what it all means. Um, all that to say that, that today we are going to talk, as you have been talking about in a lot of ways, this, I, this idea in the scriptures of the law, and what is the law, and how does it work, and is the law good or is the law bad? Um, let me read for you a couple of verses that come from the Apostle Paul's writing. They are written um, for people that had been oppressed by the law. He says this in Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul summarizes, I believe, the book of Galatians in the first verse of that chapter when he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's just, it's just a fascinating, all the little ways in which the law weaves throughout the entire story of the Bible. I titled today's message, How to Live an Awful Lawful Life. In the Old Testament, there's um, 
what we call law. There's the Ten Commandments, sort of law with a big capital L. And then there's a, a lot of law, maybe small L, which are sort of rules for living and principles and, and other things that, that are still called law. We call them law, but sometimes they're used interchangeably. Uh, they're often a way in which Israel is asked to live in the world as a witness of who God is. And one of those is, a, I, I, I'm fascinated by one of these laws. It's the law of the harvest. You may know it, but I'll remind you of it. When the farmer was um, harvesting, t- getting up, you know, at the end of the season, getting his, the fruit of his labor, there was a couple of laws that were specific to how he was to do that. One, if you think of his field and each neighbor, each neighbor farmer's field as these square plots, do you remember what he was told to do as he comes to the edge or to the corner of that property? Remember he was told to what? Round the corner. Right? So in other words, when you're harvesting, he, he tells the, by law, if we want to use that word, that you can't go all the way to the end and then back up and do this kind of janking around. When, when you're harvesting, you just you, you make a curve in the corner. You leave the corners for the foreigner, the sojourner, the refugee, the immigrant, the neighbor to come and be able to have some food for them. Second law is similar to the first for the same reason, it's a way to be generous, is that as you are harvesting and you're throwing your your stuff up on the wagon, what happens if something falls off the wagon? You leave it. I mean, it's just a beautiful social network system. Leave the corners. If something falls off the wagon, let it go. Now, let's say you're a farmer. See, I'm getting excited. And you want to live by the law. If I'm a farmer, I already know immediately when I read the story where my mind went. And here's where it goes. The Bible never says what the exact radius of that corner needs to be. Right? And so I'm going to become obsessed with this. How close can I get and still be good, like, right? And then I thought, the Bible never says, how high can I make the gates along the sides of my wagon? Like, can I put a 20-foot little wall up on my wagon? So when you heaved it up there, there's very little chance something's falling back off. Reality, I could do both of those, right? I can make a tiny little curve. I can make huge gates. When we see the law as an immutable and unchanging practice, or what I will call today a technicality, it is it's death, it's, it's, it'll kill, it just kills everything it touches. When we see the law or the rule as an immutable and forever living principle, 
It'll change how we see these things. Was God's intention, let's just be very simplistic, was God's intention to keep farmers up at night worrying about how close they could get to the corner? Or was God's intention wanting his people to learn how to be generous? And if you become generous, who's the, who benefits from that? You do. But it's weird if you wake up thinking, what can I get out of this law? It'll kill you. But if you, if you wake up thinking, what is the gift of this law, the gift of this rule, then I live to if I give away. So uh, I, I, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach myself into a cul-de-sac several times, but I'll try to get back out. Um, if I could help redefine two words in Scripture that in today's world I think would be really helpful. Here would be the two words. Peter's been speaking to this often when as sort of the premise to all that Jesus is talking about in his series is repent, the kingdom is here. But if I could help people rephrase one, two words, one word, the first word would be this word repentance. And I'll say this, I think we need to repent of our repentance. Because in contemporary world, Christian or not, the word repentance has come to mean this. I promise to try harder in the future. I promise I'm never going to do that again. And I'm going to try so hard never to do that again. The, the person on the, on the most fundamentalist side of the spectrum would say it like this, that if you're going to you know, be a Christian, then you need to love Jesus and try hard as you can to be moral. Promise you're always going to be as moral as you can be. And often in the fundamentalist kind of world, the world I grew up in, it almost always had something to do with sex. Love Jesus and, and don't even think about it till you're married. And we got all these rules about how not to do that how close you can be, how far, we'll talk about that later. Anyhow, and then on the other side, there is this idea that I just need to love Jesus and I need to promise to be nicer to people, to be more helpful to people in the future so that I can be like Jesus. Both are really good. To be moral is good, to be sexually pure is good, to be kind and helpful to people is good, but that's not what repentance is. Repentance is a way in which I, I confess the way I had been thinking about this all along. I was way off. I was totally wrong. You see, I thought that to have relationship with God was on me. And I had to be good to be loved by God. That I had to keep the law perfectly if God were going to have relationship with me and I repent of that I repent I can't keep this law I can't be good I need somebody to save me the second word would be this word law which has come to mean in both Christian and non-Christian worlds an immutable rule that is exact and uniform in behavior 
We've come to believe that the law is an unchangeable rule of exact and uniform behavior. It's easily codified. So as a young man who came to faith in Christ in the context of a very fundamentalist Christian um, sect, the law was easily codified. The law was not difficult in a sense because they broke it down for me. I just had to have a certain haircut. I had to read a certain Bible. I had to promise not to watch TV. I had to promise not to listen to certain songs. I behaved in a very strict and uniform way and in fact, I could know if I was doing good by just looking around and seeing how well I was doing relative to anybody else. And when I was doing better than them, then I could feel good about me because then I knew I was a real Christian. And it was very nice to know that they weren't a real Christian, which made me feel even better. And then on the other extreme, as we think about this law, this idea of law within the Christian world today is this idea that, that the law or the Old Testament is antiquated and unuseful and you don't even need it. So let it go. So today we're gonna to talk about this idea that the law is not an immutable set of behaviors that is easily codified and detectable in somebody else. But we're gonna talk about that the law is an immutable principle, an unchanging value that has been given to us as a gift, but we've made it into a burden. And so I'm gonna do that by walking through somewhat quickly what we call the law, capital L, and see if you can um, follow along with me and just get the illustration. At the end, here's what I'd like. I'd like for us to come to, to understand that when properly understood, what we call the law is a, is a gift from God on how we can live. and we will notice that it is primarily a way in which I can understand his love for me, but not a way in which I can manage the people around me. First law is to have no other gods before me. The second law is related, we think often, in terms of that... Um, ancient culture because the second law has to do with uh, the carving basically or making something that we then say is God. We ascribe to this graven image it's called uh, this iconoclasmus or whatever that, that this is now the God. This is the thing that has power and um, he says so have no other gods and, and don't make statues of God. And so Perhaps today you think, well, that's pretty easy. Like, there's not one idol in my house. Or is there? If I were to say to you, while perhaps in our culture, carvings are not a big issue, would you agree with me that things are kind of a big issue in our culture? Stuff? Do you think it would be fair to make a correlation that in our contemporary world, perhaps consumerism would be a way to understand to have no other gods bef 
for me. Would it be fair to say that the idea that if I can own a Maserati that is tangible and I can feel it and I can touch it, that it has the power to make me something. If you drive a Maserati, I'm not dissing on you. I would like your name. Anyhow, um, (laughs) but let's think of it that way. Just indulge me. Let's say that it is possible that today consumerism, as one example, is a way in which we have had other gods before us manifest in, in the physical things I can own and buy and touch. So here comes the issue. If you see somebody who's quite wealthy, do they... Do you know for sure that they're a materialist? Like, if they have a lot of money? Maybe they live in a nice house. Maybe they have two cars. Take nice vacations. Are they a materialist? Do you know that? You see, what's difficult when we believe that the law is is this immutable behavior, one of the reasons we're sort of attracted to that is because it helps me keep tabs on everybody around me. It's really not so much about me necessarily, but it's how I can keep tabs on everybody around me. For example, you are familiar with the great um, toilet paper crisis of 2020. (laughs) There has, as you know, the world's resources have been plundered and toilet paper has become, you know, the great currency of our world today. And so, you, along with all of your other materialistic friends, have gathered early before the doors open at Costco. You got there early enough to be near the front of the line. And you notice that I also am there at the front of the line. And the doors open. You know, symbolically, we hear the bell go off. And we begin running to the back of the store where the toilet paper is, right? And you see me grab, because they're in big packages, I don't know, like 60 rolls, I think, come in a Costco package, and you see me grab four of those and throw into my cart. What do you think? Barbarian. Barbarian. You begin to think of some words for me, right? (laughs) Greedy. There's a TV show written about people like me. Hoarder. In fact, here's my hunch. If you see me grab four 60-packs of toilet paper, my hunch is nothing good is going to come to your mind about me. And you're very smug that I'm a materialist. I live in a senior mobile home park. I've got a lot of neighbors who can't get out, who are on oxygen. Like, I'm the youngest guy in my neighborhood. If you have bad self-esteem like me, do not move into some cool suburb. Move to a senior mobile home park. (laughs) I'm telling you. Like, I am it on a stick. Like, people go, I, I kid you not, I can't tell you how many times people refer to me as young man. It's awesome. I go to the pool, I'm letting it all hang out. I look so good. Okay, off the subject. 
See, what you can't know is that I was getting those from my neighbors. You can't know. You don't have to have, I remember my father-in-law telling me, you don't have to have two dimes to rub together to be a materialist. You can have a lot of dimes to rub together and not be at all enamored by it and caught by it. Have no other gods before me because if you do, that is certain ruin for you. Let's keep going. Uh, the Lord's name in vain. Now, if there's ever been an easy commandment to keep, this is it. I mean, let's face it, there's just one word you can't say. You can say anything you want, but as long as you don't say that one word, the queen mother of them all, you're good. I was six years old, and, um, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't come from a Christian home, but nobody in my family cursed. Like, that just, we just... That just didn't happen. Um, and I knew what bad words were because my friends and I, I can remember we'd get into these little huddles and we would just start saying all the bad words we knew where nobody could hear us. And we felt very mature. My dad, when I was six years old, he began dating a woman. Um, and I remember the first time I met her. Her name was Edith. I've talked about Edith before. And um, Edith was not like anybody I'd ever met. I remember, I can still remember to this day, we were, the first time I'd met her, we were in the car and we were driving and we got stuck at a long railroad crossing. And this woman said words I had, I'd never heard another adult use without blushing. And she was just, and there was a lot of this, this, this third commandment in there. <laughs> Plus others that I think maybe should have been in there. And my dad didn't say anything. It was like he didn't even care. And he, he really liked this woman. I could tell that. We, we went to my dad's house. And I had at that time, I, I had an air gun. I don't know if you guys remember those. You cock them and you pull the trigger and it goes, poof, makes like a sound. And so I was out in front of the house and my dad's house was here and there was neighbors. And on the neighbor's houses and here there were, there were people and I'm walking around with my air gun, and I'm shooting ants in the sidewalk. And I, poof, and I said this. For everybody here, GD, I didn't get it. You see, I thought that my dad thought that was a cool word. Like, I didn't really honestly quite know even what it meant. I mean, I knew you weren't supposed to, I thought you were supposed to say it, but apparently it's okay because if you say it, if you're the kind of person who says it, my dad really likes you and I only get to see my dad every other weekend and I really want my dad to like me and think I'm cool. And so I said really loud, GD, I didn't get it. And he took me inside and he beat the tar out of me. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand. You see, he thought I broke the third commandment. Did I break the third commandment? I'm just six years old. I don't even really know what it means. I just wanted my dad to like me. Is God at the edge of his throne getting all, get him, Roland! Beat the crap out of that six-year-old. He used my name in vain. 
I've come to wonder if the Lord's name in vain. I, I think I've seen it violated. I don't know that I've seen it violated with the way we think it's violated. I can remember one time I was watching a televangelist telling people that if they wanted to be healed, God had said to him they needed to send him money. Oh my gosh, that's gotta be using God's name in vain, isn't it? Using God's name in a way that God never wanted or intended? I've seen people who, quite frankly, wanted to just get out of a relationship because they were tired or bored, sick of working on it, and one person said to the other, God told me I could leave you. I don't know if he did or not, but it just seems like a weird way to use God's name. There's two ways you can know if you are sort of a person who's obsessed with the technicalities of the law or a person who is embracing the value and the principle, the beauty of the law. Ask yourself maybe these two questions. First question is, who's, who's the primary beneficiary of this? Is it, is it a way in which I can consume and have more control and power? Or as I live out what I think God is asking, am I in fact giving up power? Am I giving up control? Who benefits? Who is getting more control and more power? Is a way you can begin to test and ask yourself. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I just happened to this week be reading in a, a Christian writer who perhaps we would describe as maybe somewhat from the left or the progressive movement. He was writing a, a blog that basically was a defense of why we don't really need the Old Testament. And he, he wrote it in a way that was saying that you, know, you, you really can't trust the Bible. Um, and he said it, and here's how we know, because the Bible contradicts itself. And here was his example. In John 5, if you remember the story, Jesus tells this story about, or, Jesus, or John records this incident in the life of Jesus, where there's been a man for lots and lots of years who's been sitting by this pool. And there's been this urban myth that if some water bubbles up, if the bubbles happen in the water, the first person who can get get in will get healed. Um, and so Jesus comes along, it happens to be Saturday, and um, the Sabbath, and he, he happens, he comes along and he says to the man, would you like to be healed? The guy goes, sure. I mean, I've been crippled my whole life, but I can't get in the water because I'm crippled. And Jesus says, hmm, I'll heal you. And I don't know what he does, but he, he heals him. And the guy, the guy can walk. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to roll off that mat you've been laying on. Start walking. You're healed. Praise God. It's awesome. And the Pharisees, when Jesus, Jesus knew they were watching. He was, he was, they're watching him. Look, he, he's got to be God. He can heal people. That's amazing. 
And they were amazed at Jesus. Not because he could heal. What were they amazed about? That on a Saturday, Jesus told the guy, roll up your mat and walk away. They were consumed with the fact that Jesus said, roll up your mat and carry it. Now, why would that be such a big deal to them? Because you're not supposed to do what on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And clearly, if you bend over and roll up a mat and you put it under your arms and go home healed, you're violating the law. So God, when he's thinking about Sabbath and ways he can mess with people's lives and make them miserable, he thinks, yes, if somebody gets healed and I trick them into picking up their mat, they broke the law. Isn't it great that, that the principle, you gotta ask yourself, always ask yourself, what's the principle, what's the value here? Is it that God's trying to trick us into not doing stuff? You see, left to our own devices, we would believe that there's never enough. That six days is, there's never, six days is not enough to, to accumulate enough to be able to live safely and comfortably. We wouldn't stop, we would always have to work because, because my livelihood, my, my, my existence, depends, existence depends on how much I can get and I can't get enough in six days. I'll need every day I can. I cannot rest. I can't cease from anxiety. And so God says, I'm going to make a law. He says, I want you to stop accumulating. I want you to stop trying to make life work for you every day. I want you to trust me. There'll be enough. Just rest for a day. That's the great and beautiful life-giving principle but we made it a law that we, where we could, we could write all the little rules about it and we could know how everybody's doing. And just to be safe, let's make sure nobody picks up their mat on a day they are healed. What I would like to have written to this Christian brother is that I think you've misunderstood the story. You see, the Bible is written in a progressive way. The, the Bible, as an illustration, it, it is as if we were teaching children math. And in second grade, we don't say to them, let's, let's now do our algebra. We don't teach them algebra. What do we teach them? Teach them arithmetic. My, my father-in-law is the smartest man I've ever known, and he's a mathematical genius. He can do theoretical. He's the only person in my entire life, I honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm not dis, he's the only person I have ever seen use in a practical way algebra. I saw him do it once. It was like magic to me. I had never seen that before. It's crazy. But it's not like he's going, who needs arithmetic? Arithmetic is stupid. It's old. I don't need arithmetic. I just need algebra but you can't do algebra without arithmetic. That's how the Bible 
is. We, we, we look at it going, ah, oh, we don't need that. Yes, I even, today I need to remember to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. I need to remember that I can rest, I can stop, I don't have to constantly accumulate. I can take time and I won't have lost time to be with God. I told you I was going to get crazy here. Honor your father and mother. April's parents lived with us for uh, six years. And after six years, we, we put them in a home to punish them for the six years that they had lived with us. <laughs> it was, now, we're going to show you what that's like. No. No, we got together with the family, with them. They were there. They were part of the conversation. What's the next best thing for you? And that was the next best thing. Some people put their parents in homes because they're sick of them. They're tired of them. They don't want to deal with them. Do you see what I'm saying? Any of these, there's not a, a strict rule that everybody can follow and know how it looks. But there's a value, a principle that will live underneath it. Honor your father and mother. How many of us, by the way, have been in therapy about this issue? It's, it, it, can, it can be complicated, but it, underneath it is a life-giving principle. Six, do not kill. Some of you may be from a tradition within the Christian community called the Anabaptists. Um, Anabaptists have a, have a long history. Um, Quaker, uh, Mennonite, friends. Um, of, of a way in which they would interpret this in a nonviolent way, which would prohibit them outside of hunting to, own, to have a gun, to have a protective device, to self-protect or family protect in any way. And they come to that because that is their conclusion. That's how they believe Jesus wants them to live out this. Honestly, I have a different conclusion. I do believe Jesus wants me to be nonviolent. I, I do believe he wants me to honor life. But if someone came into my home seeking to hurt my granddaughter, or my wife, or my friends, I would use lethal force if I had to, if that was my only option to stop them. You may not agree, it may appall you that I've said that. What I'm saying is both the Anabaptist and I both want to live out the same thing. You see, I think the do not kill, the, the principle underneath that is that life is unbelievably valuable. And I hear that as a way in which I feel like I'm also called to be protective of life. And, and they have heard that in a way that says they personally can, cannot intervene using something lethal. And I personally believe we both can live out the value of that. It's a complicated one, and I'm not going to get into war and all, the, all that other stuff. I'll just say simply, I believe what's underneath it is a value of life. That's what we honor. Adultery. Again, this one's got to be easy. Come on, just check off the box, right? A, it can only apply if you're married. Is that right? And if you are married, it can only apply 
if a whole bunch of circumstances conspired to where you were alone with this person, unless you're willing to go to prison, and privately something happened. So as long as you can stay away from that hotel, you're good to go, right? Is that how you would read this? Is it only that? Sex is a complicated conversation, no, no doubt. I was, in, I was in Africa, and I was at a, uh, at a very large and very old um, Christian missionary boarding school where lots and lots of kids went while their parents were missionaries throughout that continent. And um, they asked me to, I, I spoke like in their chapel, and then they asked me to, to come and share in their ethics class, the senior ethics class, and I think they made some assumptions about me. I'm a pretty conservative guy, and they knew my friend who was very conservative, and so they felt comfortable asking me to come, and what they wanted me to do was to tell the kids that ethics is basically this. You, you read the Ten Commandments, and then you listen to somebody like me tell you exactly how you can live that out. And usually when you're talking to a high school group, when I've been invited to speak to a high school group, they're really particularly interested that I give them the rules about sex. Now I know Peter has been speaking about this, because as we know, Peter's obsessed with sex. But, um, <laughs> he doesn't even blush. <laughs> like, <laughs> that wasn't a compliment. Anyhow, um, so, and Peter knows this. He, he was involved in youth ministry. Parents are just, oh, please, give my, give my kids the smallest box they can live in. Even though every one of them used to be a kid that age who could never have lived in that box, right? They want you to give them the rules about everything. Which base you can go to? How, can you round a base? Can you round a base and go back to the last base? Can you steal a base? I mean, the whole bit. It's, I'm sorry, about. it's all about baseball analogies and, and stuff like that. Um, so I, I said, to, I'm sorry. So I, I, I'm back at this class and we're talking about sex. And I said to them, okay, you see, I think that the Bible is written with life-giving principles and we turn it into into laws which will steal from you that are primarily designed, I'll keep repeating this, are primarily designed so I can know if I'm good enough, but I'm really more interested to know if you're good enough. Who's in, who's out? So I said, so what's the rule about sex? Now, very conservative Christian high school group, they all got this answer correct. Because the answer clearly is no sex before Marriage, yeah. Um, I thought somebody said menopause, but no, it's marriage. Um, and they say, yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll set aside the, the value and the implications underneath that, but let's go, I, I'm with you. Then I said, but here's what's interesting. How do you go from single when you can't have sex to married when you can have sex? What's that transition, and where in the Bible does it give me the rule for how I do that? And they, they couldn't answer. They just kept saying marriage. 
Great. What is marriage? I think marriage is one of the most important stories in the Bible. My ethic of sexuality is not rooted in any prohibition. My ethic of sexuality is rooted in a life-giving story that says two people are going to now walk together to become one. Because as Jesus said, like the Father and I are one. I want two people to begin to try to live and experience a story that is about oneness. And marriage is the way that that story can best be told. It's not a story of, of technicality. It's a story of beauty and liberty. Another sermon for another day. Stealing. I kind of refer back to, again, this maybe going back to the, the first commandment. But, and by the way, all these commandments interweave, right? Like this one relates to that one and if I keep this one, can I keep that one? And they're all interrelated. But, but let's take stealing. It, it, let's go back to that first story about the, the great um, toilet paper scare of 2020 and somebody taking all of, the, all of the toilet paper they can get. They may be violating some idea of trusting God that they have, to have no other God before them, but could they also be a person who is stealing? Now, our, no law would convict them, right? But isn't that what the value of the principle is, is to not take something that isn't all mine, that I'm not supposed to have. Don't take from Peter what I'm not supposed to have. And I'm probably not supposed to have all the toilet paper and Peter to have none of the toilet paper. I think that would be Stealing, lying, we're not supposed to lie. Who's the beneficiary of the lie becomes the question. Remember Rahab, the harlot, who was protecting the spies and, and, and she hid them. And when the people who wanted to kill the spies came and asked her, do you have the spies? She said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the spies could escape. And, and her story is so significant that she is part of the lineage of our Savior. And never once does it go, and she was a terrible liar. Now again, you may see this differently, but I'm saying the value is rooted in who's the primary beneficiary. She wasn't lying to save her skin. She was lying to save their skin. And people will often use the, the Nazi example. Would I lie if a German came and asked if I was hiding Jews? I would. I would. Coveting. Coveting. Let, let's, we'll narrow the coveting one. It could be, I wish I had my neighbor's stuff. I wish I had his life. I wish I had his job. Often in our culture, which has become so materialistic and is so, it's just almost too easy to point out in the material world. 
I know I live with it all the time. I, I, I never, I would have never thought to pay more for really good toothpaste if on TV it didn't tell me that was the toothpaste all my friends used to get white teeth. Dumb illustration, but you see what I'm saying? I, I, I buy things because I'm told or I have an inner belief that somebody else has it and has gotten it, and I want it too. I want what they have. That's how marketing works. If you want to be as happy as this person, then you need that product. Anyhow, but the one about the, it's weird about the coveting the, the spouse. That one's kind of weird. Don't covet your, your neighbor's oxen, ass, or wife. <laughs> weird little trilogy. Um, I was thinking about that. It, it's, and I, I heard Peter say this. It, it, it's so common. Man, I, I wish my wife were that attentive. Oh, I wish my wife, you know, were that affectionate. Oh, I wish my husband w- w- would talk about me like that. I wish I had their husband, or I wish I had their wife. You know, it dawned, I was thinking about this a lot this week, and then it dawned on me, you know, I'd never asked myself, I wonder, I wonder what I could do to become the kind of person where my wife would want to be more intimate with me. I wonder what I could do to become the kind of person that would make her feel safer with me. I wonder what I could do that would remove some of the barrier for her wanting to connect. I've always blamed it on her. I've always believed that the answer was outside of me. One of the stories in the scripture is that these laws aren't written so I can change the world outside of me and get it to work. These laws were written with an immutable principle that I can look at me and understand his grace for me and also his desire for me. I know that God wants me to wake in the morning and know that I'm safe. I know that God wants me to wake in the morning and know that I have enough, that he's enough. I know that's what he wants for me. And I believe the law speaks to that principle. The the law will have be used in lots of different ways in the scripture. Here's my hunch. My hunch is that when it's used in a negative way, it is because we have used the law as a measuring stick to know whether or not I am righteous or somebody else is righteous. And when it is used in a positive way, it is because it is speaking to the heart of God that wants you to be free. I'll go back to that first verse, though. Isn't it interesting? If I were to ask you, what's the greatest commandment? What would you say? Come on, easy. I'm, come on, that's a softball down the middle. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. Easy. What did Paul say? Paul said, love your neighbor. Ha! Told you the Bible contradicts. 
Isn't, this is that point. Because Jesus even said, you can't divide this stuff up. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second, this is my interpretation, my translation, is exactly like the first. Love others as yourself. Because if I love Peter, I'm loving God. Jesus even said that because if, if you give water to Peter or if I give food to you, I'm loving Jesus. And if I love Jesus, there's no way I could look at you and let you go hungry or thirsty. I can't separate them. It doesn't mean that the others are not important. The others flesh out what it looks like. It gives me an idea. Oh, that's what loving. Some people would say that, that, that um, command one through four, or three, depending if you're Roman Catholic or not, would be loving God and then, you know, five through ten is loving others. That, maybe that's true, but I can't steal from you and love God. The principle is this. God wants you free. And listening to the law in a different way will contribute to that. Understanding that it is a principle. But if you twist that just a little bit and make it a way where you can feel self-righteous and in charge, it will kill you. Let me pray. Lord, I love, oh gosh, I love how complicated and simple this all is. And some days I wake up thinking, man, it's so easy, it's so clear. And other days I wake up going, I don't know how this all works. But I love you for that. I love that it's, it's you who are the answer. Lord, I do love, I'm so grateful that at the end of all of these talks, we do the one thing that is the summary of it all that shows us what it is to love you. It shows us what the law was intended. It shows us your heart. It shows us our absolute inability to be righteous. It shows us your unbelievable generosity to make us righteous. That you became sin who knew no sin. The one who is a sinner could be forgiven. We're really grateful. Oh Lord, I pray you help us be free and not to use our freedom to indulge our flesh, but to serve our friends. Amen. Hey, I wanted to um, invite you if after the service or during your time here you felt the need that somebody would be willing to pray for you here up front or to the side and you might even want to be thinking, am I enslaved in some way? Am I, do I feel enslaved? And maybe you want to be free. And also I would ask you, because people want to participate in that extended worship, either you can come quietly here or be prayed for, if you would maybe hold off on your conversation till you get down the, the stairs. That would, be, that would be a gift. I'll, re, I'll reread the passage I read at the beginning. You, my brothers and sisters of the sanctuary... We're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. 
Love your neighbor as yourself.